recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista getting a Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December 21st, 2013. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. This is the 10th installment of Pragmatic Genesis, explaining 2C line. I would like to um, use tonight's program to just clean up uh, a, a lot of things, a, a couple of misunderstandings, and, and a discussion of Dominion theology. After tonight's program, I hope to move on in, into the history of Jacob and Esau, probably in, in, in installment 11 and, and beyond that. I hope Sword Brethren is here with me once again tonight. I'm having technical issues. I have had technical issues all weekend, and equipment failure doesn't help, and, and tonight I'm trying to rectify that by, by using three computers to do this program. Um, talk show is at least working tonight. It did not work last night. This program did not. But my Christagenia Internet Radio program on Fridays did not run on talk show. It um It... it aired on my four Christagenia servers, and, and there were probably over 40 listeners, as far as I could tell. It, it, sometimes there's double people on, on, uh, different, on, on different streams, so it's, it, it's hard not to count repeats. The, the, um, the program already has uh, plenty of downloads on, on the website, so I'm sure it'll be heard. Tonight, once again, Sword Brethren is here with me to Hello. help me present my, my, my um, discussion of Genesis. Hello, Brian. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. I, I want to um, – there's a few things I want to talk about. First, um, you would ask the question in the last installment of this, and, and I thought it was a good question. You would ask if Nimrod – what was actually opposed to God in, in establishing a tyranny. And it was a direct affront to God, I believe, and, and, and hopefully we'll be able to clear that up and um, talk about a few other things. Do you have any opening statements, anything you'd like to say? Well, Yeshua is Yahweh. I'd like to say that. Well, well right, and I'm hoping to talk about that at the end of this, of, of this evening, um, it, it's, it, it's actually pretty funny, but I, I, I hate to even say his name, right? Joseph November, who, who I did programs with for, um, two years before I realized he was Joseph November. Well, when we first started doing programs, he was basically denying the divinity of Christ and, and, um, after much discourse over over a period of about a year, he seemed to accept the idea and and stopped arguing with me and very often agreed with me on that issue in our second year of programs. Well, well, I'm sure that I could dig out some of his agreements if I listened to our Revelation series just in the first um in the first couple of podcasts. Well, where Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega and the first and the last and things like that. And, and I remember having gone into the, the oneness issue, the, the, the fact, the, the scriptural fact that Yahshua Christ is God, Yahweh, come in the flesh. Well, well now, after um, several years of separation, he's actually now denying the divinity of Christ. And, and, and that's the... Well, well, it's the dog returning to his own vomit. It's a perfect example of that, in my purview. 
the dog has returned to his own vomit. He's he's sliding back into that Talmudic cesspool that he came out of. Joshua Christ said, I and my father are one. Right, and you know, he raises the same issue that the rabbis raised back then. If, you know, he is God, who does he pray to? Does he call on himself? Well, well, you know, Yahshua Christ came, Yahweh in the flesh came here to walk the earth as a man, to live as a man, to live a sinless life as a man, the only man who has ever lived a sinless life, who has ever been blameless, and to pray as a man, and to do all of this as an example to men. He didn't come here and and say, I'm God and I'm going to pray to myself. He came here as an example to us all, an example that we can only hope to follow, that we can only hope to to even um, be able to mimic in in, in the slightest bit because sin is, you know, lust and, and desire, that they're all powerful persuasions. He overcame them, and, and that's our example. When he prayed, he wasn't praying for his own benefit. And, and I discussed this at length in, in my Luke presentation last year. He was praying as an example to us. And everything he did in his life was an example to us and was for our benefit as men so that we would have, like, you know, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, so that we would have that that blueprint uh, on how we should live our lives. And, of course, we all fail, but that's also part of the lesson. So, so he didn't come and pray for his benefit. He, he came and prayed for our benefit. Right. And, and the, 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 the position that Yahshua Christ is not Yahweh come in the flesh is not the Jewish position. Direct, well, well, it is a Jewish position. It, it's, the, it's the position the Jews had right from the beginning. It's the position that they tried to use to, to um, pollute, upset, and divide Christianity. You know, Isaiah says, unto us a child is born, he will be called the wonderful God, the, the, the everlasting Father. I'm paraphrasing. I, I could probably dig it out. It, it's... Um, it can't be too far away. I think it's Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, no, I'm sorry, it's Isaiah 6. It's Isaiah 9, 6. That this is the prophecy of Isaiah concerning Christ. It's a messianic prophecy. It's well recognized. And the Dead Sea Scrolls fully substantiate, the Dead Sea Scrolls copy of Isaiah fully substantiates the language here. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 750 B.C. That's the Christian hope that God would come as a man and die as a man, a blameless sacrifice, that the children of Israel would be released from the law Because the children of Israel should have died. The children of Israel, the penalty of death was against the children of Israel. Yahweh promises in Isaiah, I'm sorry, in Jeremiah chapter 31, 
that Israel would not die, that Israel would always be a nation, even though for the charge of adultery, fornication, idolatry, Israel was worthy of death under the law, Yahweh came and died as a man to free Israel from the law. Paul spells this out in Romans chapter 7. Eli James, he, he makes Paul a liar, he makes Christ a liar, and, and he makes Isaiah a liar. I'm just basically, that, that's what Jews do. Imagining what it would be like if November were around back then, there'd probably be a part in the gospel where it says, and then a Sadducee named November approached him and tempting him said, you know, Master, to whom do you pray? If you are God, why prayest thou to yourself? Right. Well, he's praying as an example to men. And he's demonstrating in the Garden of Gethsemane that even though his will, that, that he desired not to have to undergo that suffering and that punishment, that it's God's will that prevails. And when men likewise face the same challenges and the same calamities, we can't take concern for ourselves. Christ died on behalf of his brethren and, and his people. We have to sacrifice ourselves in many different ways for our people in like manner and not be concerned for ourselves and what suffering we may face and, and, and what the, the, um, the implications of what we have to do may be for us we have to face that suffering and give our will to God, as he did, and understand that whatever is going to be done, it's God's will that must be done, and right. not the will of man. It's an example for us. He wasn't praying on behalf of himself. It was an example for us. That's why it's in the Scripture. That's why it's in there three times. Right, and I'd like to... Um you may have already touched on this, and you may have mentioned it on the forum, but technically by the gospel and by the epistle definition, November is an antichrist. He's a liar who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Well, well if Isaiah chapter 9 is a messianic prophecy saying that God's going to come, that the Son that's going to be born of a virgin is going to be God. I mean, Israel, hear ye, these are the words of Christ, hear ye, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. There aren't two gods. Thomas looked at Christ and said, my Lord and my God. What was Thomas, an idolater, elevating a man to right. the position of God? Well, November Thomas says, the divinity of Christ. Apparently, you, Clifton, and I suppose I include myself in here, too, we're all just believers in oneness, and we're trying to divide and destroy CI by teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, well, I heard this. I went and listened to this today because somebody had mentioned it in the Christagenia chat last night, and I couldn't believe my ears. Joseph November basically denied the divinity of Yahshua Christ. Stock trader Dan, Dan Kersey, went along with him, and, 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 and he was afraid he'd suffered a Jew label. If he did so, well, well, you're damn right he deserves the Jew label. First, anybody who, who, who's proud to be a stock trader may as well be a Jew because it's the business of usury, and God hates usury. None of us are innocent, but God hates usury. I sure as hell, I might be a sinner, but I'm sure as hell not going to brag about it. 
So, so it, it's that's where that's coming from. I mean, these guys aren't Bible experts. They're clowns. They don't know the first thing about Scripture. Uh, I just hope that people finally start to realize that, that, that Joe November is nothing but an, an – an, and it took me a long time to realize this, and I resisted it, and, and I don't make these charges lightly, that this man's nothing but a divisive and infiltrating Jew. That there's – He's nothing besides that, and, and it's got to end. It's, it's got to come to an end. I shouldn't even be recognizing him. I hate even talking about him. Uh, I was hoping that we, this would come up between us at the end of this program and, and not at the forefront. Uh, I was hoping it would be an afterthought and, and not an introduction. But it, this is a crucial understanding in Christianity. Well, it, it, Yahweh was married to Israel, and Israel was liable to death under the law. Yahweh promised that he would, after he divorced, he put away Israel, in, and that's in Isaiah, Hosea, Amos. He promised, Jeremiah says, Yahweh says, the two families of the earth that I put away, he promised to betroth Israel to him once again. And he can't do that if Israel remains bound to the law. And he chooses to come as a man and die. Well, you know, I think Israel, I... I see Israel is free. A natural progression of November's doctrine. He's going to claim that the white race was put away, and a defiled spouse that's been put away cannot be taken back, and that the kingdom is taken from the unproductive and given to those bringing forth the fruits thereof. And I guess that'll be people like his son-in-law. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, well, the bottom line is that the defiled spouse, he's right about that, the defiled spouse can't be taken back. But neither can a son marry his own wife. A I mean, son, son can't, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, neither can a son marry his father's wife. Right. So, so if Israel's still under the law, either way there's a serious problem here. And it can only be solved by the um, husband dying and coming back. It can only be solved, and, and, and that's the... the, the the key to understanding Christianity and, and understanding why Christ had to die on the cross, well, which I'm sure he can't answer. I mean, he might come up with a, with, with a lot of um, pompous, denominational, churchianity crap, but, but why Christ had to die on the cross is, it is explained perfectly with the simple statement that Yahshua Christ was Yahweh come in the flesh who had to die as a man in order to free the children of Israel from the law. He fulfilled the law. That is how he fulfilled the law. And that's exactly what Paul is explaining in Romans chapter 7. I think it's the first 11 verses. That's exactly what Paul of Tarsus is explaining. It's spelled out. I ain't making this up. I didn't pull this out of thin air. It's spelled out in Romans chapter 7. I did a program on this. It's linked on the Christagonia Forum. I did a program on this. I explained all of this right from Scripture in about 45, the first 45 minutes of an open forum program, which I did almost four years ago. On Yahweh's covenant people, on, on a night when Joseph November had um, taken off, uh, I did this in February of 2010, and, and anybody who wants to understand exactly why Christ, why Christ had to die, why Yahweh had to come as a man, 
and die on a cross and be that Lamb of God who takes away the, the, the sins of the society, the Adamic world, well, listen to that podcast and you'll get your answers. And you'll get it right from Scripture but without an, any um, psychobabble. I don't. I never wrote those notes out. I don't have the notes. I mean, they were in various places on Christagenia. I did that program off the top of my head, I believe. So you're just divisive for teaching Jesus as the Messiah. Yeah, yeah, I'm divisive for teaching that Yahshua Christ is God. That that's divisive when Christ stood there and said, "I and my Father are one," and and He who has seen me has seen the Father. What the hell? Well, when the world, I don't know how it could be more plain and blunt and direct than that. When the world is run by antichrists, I guess you're, we have to be divisive. Absolutely. That there's no doubt. Well, it, it's amazing. Or rather, it's an indictment against our race that November still has followers. Well, well, yeah, it is, but a lot of those followers are, are, are bastards and, and, and um, people with, with, with mongrel grandchildren and, and half-breed children and mongrel, mongrel husbands. I've had enough clashes, and, and Melissa, too, has had several clashes, and she's defended me several times from some of his so-called followers on Facebook, and she's found that they're part Cherokee or, or their husbands are Mexicans, uh, or, and their children are half Mexican, that they have some kind of dog in the Joe November race, that they have some kind of connection to his teaching. They're not upright people. And, and if there are any white people who, who are still listening to this clown, well, well yeah, you know, I, I, I feel sorry for you. That, that's all I could say. I, I will, here's the forum post. I'm putting it in the, in the talk show and in the Christagenia chats right now, that there's probably about 60 people, 70 people listening that are in those chats to this program, that they all have the links. They could go to the Christagenia forum. They could listen three minute, uh, a three-minute podcast. There's a player right there on that page, and, and, and you could listen to three minutes and, and hear, um, hear these clowns basically denounce the, the fact that Yahshua Christ is indeed the Messiah of Isaiah chapter 9. Well, November must have believed this all along because I did shows with him in 2007, 2008, 2009, and 2010, and he never taught any of this. He never brought it up on a program, and if he did, that would have been a problem. Well, I would hope. He must have concealed. Uh, I, I would hope because it's the the, the one divisive issue that that um, that separated Christians from Jews in the first century. Right. So, and, and I understand that the the um, denominational sects and and the early Christian that the early organized church has been infiltrated for a long time, and I understand that. Um, that there were always sects that rejected the divinity of Christ, but the original 
Catholic, and I'm going to have to explain that word Catholic in a second, what it really means, the original Catholic Christian assemblies all understood that Yahshua Christ was Yahweh God come in the flesh. Now, when I use the word Catholic in that sense, because the, the Roman Catholic Church really didn't begin to take form until the time of Justinian in the 6th century. But the original sense of the word Catholic had nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church. The original meaning of the word Catholic does not mean universal. It does not mean that. It was not used that way in any of the early Christian writers. It was not, period, end of story. I would challenge anybody to go read 5,000 pages of early Christian literature. I guarantee you will not find the word Catholic before the 4th century. You will not find the word Catholic means universal, as in an all-encompassing faith that's for anybody that comes along. That's not what the word means. The word Catholic comes from two Greek words. The first word is kata. It means down in, in its most basic form. It can mean according to. It's often translated according to in the King James Version and sometimes in the Christogenian New Testament. It's a preposition. The second word that gives us the word Catholic is the Greek word halos. Halos means whole. Kath, kata halos or kathalos as it's elided. Kataholus means according to the whole. In the first and second and third centuries AD, what we had was we had Christians who rejected the Old Testament and only wanted to accept the New Testament. Then we had the, the extreme version of those Christians were the Marcionites. The Marcionites even cut references to the Old Testament out of the New Testament scriptures. Then you had, at the other extreme, the Jews who rejected all the Gospels in the New Testament writings because they clung to the Old Testament, to the Torah, to the law, whatever, that they rejected Christ. So you had two extremes there, and the true apostolic traditional Christians called themselves Catholic because their faith was according to the whole. They accepted the Old Testament as the Word of God, and they accepted the New Covenant, the New Testament Scriptures, as the Word of God. They accepted both Testaments as the Word of God. They were the real Christians, and they were the original Catholics. That's the original sense of the word Catholic is a Christian that accepted Old Testament writings and the Gospels, and the Epistles of the New Testament. That's what a Catholic originally meant. And those Catholics always believed that Yahshua Christ was Yahweh God come in the flesh. Now, there were other fringes. The Arian heresy was all about Christians, or, or people that thought they were Christians, that saw God that saw Christ and God as two different entities, and Christ as just a man. That was what the Arian heresy was all about. So, so that, that's, that there were sects. Yes, there were always sects, but there were always um, interlopers, infiltrators, and false teachers, and, and that's the reason why there were sects. 
So that that's probably all I want to say about that. Do you have any comments on the, our progress in the book of Genesis to this point? That that's what I was driving at in the first place. Well, I don't really want to mention November, just one thing in relation to him in Genesis. He set himself up as contrary to God, so it, it's clear that he is a continuation of the serpent-woman-seed-line struggle that we've covered throughout the last however many weeks or now months that it's been. And just like the Canaanites, we were warned that they would be pricks and thorns, and here he is. He's a prick and a thorn. He's trying to destroy genuine CI, and he's a corrupter and a polluter. Well, well there's no doubt. By their fruits, you know them. By their fruits, you know them. There's no doubt. Okay, last week you had, you had asked about Nimrod, and because of tech, what we had an interruption last week, that your question never got answered. I would like to get into that and, 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 and try to get this program rolling What was that. All right. And we're going to talk about a couple of things in, in Genesis chapter 9 and 10 and 11 before we move on to the promise of Abraham, which I hope to get to tonight. I, I pray. Let me say that Noah, Noah was called by Peter, and I understand that most translations botch it. Please um, check the Christogenian New Testament. Noah was called by pre Peter the eighth preacher of righteousness. He was the eighth living man in the line of the eldest firstborn sons. Paul explained that Christ was a priest after the order of Melchizedek in, in, in the epistle to Hebrews, and Paul was really only repeating something that was prophesied of Christ, of the Messiah, in the 110th Psalm, in Psalm 110, verse, verse 4. Now, Paul called the church of Christ, the assembly, the ecclesia of Christ, he called that the church of the firstborn in Hebrews 12:23. And that scripture allows us to understand what the Melchizedek priesthood is. It's the assembly of the firstborn. The firstborn, the birthright holder in the pre-Diluvian, the ante-Diluvian, the world before the flood, right? The ante-Diluvian society. The birthright holder was the preacher of righteousness. That's why Peter calls Noah the eighth preacher of righteousness. That's why... Paul explains that Christ is the true Melchizedek priest and that his assembly is the assembly of the firstborn because Christ is the firstborn. Because he is Yahweh come in the flesh, he is the true Melchizedek priest because he is the origin of the Melchizedek priesthood. The birthright holder in Hebrew tradition is the family priest. The eldest son is the family priest. That is why Abel was sacrificing to tell us that this doesn't belong to Cain, that I'm not going to let him get away with my birthright because he's not really Adam's son. That is what gave Abel the license to sacrifice. The birthright holder is the family priest. The proof of that is later in Scripture in the book of Numbers, where Yahweh says that he will take the tribe of Levi for the priesthood 
in place of the firstborn sons. That the tribe of Levi would have the priesthood in place of the firstborn sons. And that established the Levitical priesthood. Now, that leads us to Nimrod. And Nimrod was a mighty man and established an empire. Well, that empire would have been contrary to the established order where the birthright holder is the family priest and and he's the priest of the entire Adamic family. And there was a priest of Melchizedek alive on the earth when Nimrod founded his empire. Nimrod was actually an Adamic man who was rebelling from Yahweh by saying that I'm going to be the king. He's the first Adamic man claiming to be a king. It, it, it seems to me, at least re, who is recorded in Scripture, he's the first Adamic man claiming to be king when Yahweh should be king and his priest should be the Melchizedek priest. So, so Nimrod's actions are certainly contrary and in opposition to God. All right. There's no doubt in my mind, and that's why. And that now, earlier when we discussed the scattering of Simeon and Levi in relation to Jacob making that pronouncement against them because they slew the town full of those Canaanites who had raped their sister, you mentioned that Levi, though, was scattered in a manner that was not as, say, um, destructive as Simeon was scattered because Levi's people became the Levitical priests. Well, well, right. Levi was actually, he, he was rewarded. Simeon was passed over. Right. So what, what, what ultimately became of Simeon then? Well, well you know, Simeon is basically what became part of southern Judea, what was the land of Simeon. It's without doubt that a lot of the people of Simeon were taken away when, when the... Um, the ten when the Assyrians carried away not only the ten northern tribes but also most of Judah. All right. But Simeon, the, Simeon, the tribal history, yeah, you know, it's not only Simeon. There's a few tribes that are hardly mentioned again after the Book of Joshua. That they're hardly mentioned again because they're never the the central focus, right? But but Simeon must have been there and must have been taken away with the Assyrian deportations. And we shouldn't doubt that, but Simeon had a, a very um, obscure role in Israelite history, there's no doubt. But some of the other tribes did too. Some of the other tribes are hardly heard from also. Right, so clearly Simeon so, doesn't stand out as much as Levi. Well, well, no, as much as Levi, as much as Dan, as much as even Asher, right? But, but um, yeah, you know, the, 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 the accounts which we have in Kings and Chronicles, and even in Judges, that they are so abbreviated. And the focus is always around what's going on in Jerusalem and, and what's going on in Samaria, because they're the capital cities of, of the central, the tribes with the central focus, which are Judah and Ephraim. So, that there are other tribes which get some mentions here and there in Scripture, but after the uh, 
after the kingship of, of David and Solomon, the, the other tribes are, are really rarely mentioned All right. in Scripture. And, and, and their faith, I, I mean, we see accounts in Scripture of where they're being deported by the Assyrians, but even then, not all the tribes are mentioned. So, so the well, story we, have of, to, we have to assume some things because we're not told otherwise. That's just the way it is. With Nimrod being contrary to God, there's also that apocryphal story. I'm assuming it's apocryphal that he climbed up onto the Tower of Babel and started shooting arrows into the sky, claiming that he would eventually hit God and kill God. I, I would rather stay with what we have in the Bible in, right. in many of the respects. I, I mean, that that that's just seems to me like a silly embellishment. Right, uh, I'm being honest. Something someone lifted out of the Talmud. Nimrod was the first Adamic man to to um, try to take kingship upon himself, bypass the Melchizedek priesthood, which is the appointed priesthood of God, the the, the priesthood of the firstborn. Hebrews 12:23 and, and um, rule over his Adamic brethren and, and assert his tyranny over his Adamic brethren, well, which is exactly what he did. Right, so he's the, basically because, substituting his own judgment and his own law and his own codes for God's law. Well, well, that would come hand in hand, right? And Nimrod is from Ham. So, so we see once again, Ham is um, usurping his father's authority in, in a lot of ways. That is, it's probably not a mistake that the the name Ham means heat in, in Hebrew. Cam. It's probably the word we get chemical from. It means heat, and and it could be equated with passion, right? Nimrod, the empire Nimrod founded, I call it the first Babylonian empire. That's, that's not really a fair name for it. It's, um, it. It was the first empire in Babylonia. The word first Babylonian, the, the phrase first Babylonian empire really belongs to a, to a successor empire, which came along later in history. The... Um, one thing I want to talk about is the 1,200 years. There are over 1,200 years between the flood of Noah and the call of Abraham. And, and most people really don't realize that, but the Bible is absolutely silent on those years. We have the dispersion of the tribes in Genesis chapter 11. Now, I would take it for granted that we don't really know how many years transpired between what we can guess, right, down, we can count, I'm sorry, we can count down to the time of Peleg, okay? Peleg is there for a reason. It says, in his days, the earth was divided. Now, I've seen a lot of um, wacky ideas about what that means, but all that has to mean is that in Peleg's time, that's when the tribes split the land up. That's when the tribes were divided into various portions of land. That's when the Deuteronomy 32.8 event occurred, when Yahweh God separated the sons of Adam. That happened in Peleg's time. That's why it says of Peleg, in his time, the earth was divided. Now, now we can count 
down to pay leg and come out with an approximation of, of when the Genesis 11 event occurred, but it's still many centuries until the call of Abraham, and all the Bible has for us is the genealogy in Genesis chapter 10, which does bring us down to the time of Abraham, but there's no history. There is no history whatsoever of what's going on in those 1,200 years. Now, one of the things that must have happened in that 1,200-year time frame is the foundation of Nimrod's empire. By scholarly accounts, the beginning of Mesopotamian civilization, and, and this is deduced from archaeology and, and, and inscriptions, was around 3500 B.C. Now, a lot of people, this Sargon of Akkad, and I have to mention him again because there's a popular book by this Mrs. Sidney Bristow that identifies him with Cain. Well, from inscription, Sargon of Akkad can be estimated to have become the king of Kush, of Kish. Kish, it's probably the same word, Kush. Kish was a city in Sumer, and Sargon of Akkad became its king around 2400 B.C. Now, the Masoretic text chronology made it easy for Mrs. Sidney Bristow to, to put that right at around the time of Noah's flood and, and try to claim that he was Cain, and, 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 and that's really ridiculous because the Masoretic text chronology, well, when it's examined and compared to the Septuagint and compared to inscriptions in history, it doesn't hold water. It's terrible. It, it's a lie, and... and we have evidence of that in historical documents. The 1,200 years between the flood of Noah and the call of Abraham brought us empires, the empire of the Sumerians, which is the most likely candidate for the, the time of Nimrod, the empire of the Sumerians, the Mitanni kingdom in, in far northern Syria, the empire of the Hittites, that there were wars between the Elamites and the Sumerians, that there were wars between the Syrians and the, and the Chaldeans, who were a branch of the Syrians and, and the Sumerians, and the Canaanite tribes. There was constant warfare in that 1,200 years. There was the rise and fall of many powerful city-states, such as Mari and Ebla. The, the, um, actually, the five cities on the plain, which were destroyed, along with Sodom and Gomorrah, all of those cities were mentioned in inscriptions found at Marion Ebla. I can't even start to, I didn't even make an attempt to try to summarize the history of this period because it's very complex and it's not always properly estimated by archaeologists. For instance, and they do it just on the basis of language, the Mitanni Kingdom, the Mitanni Kingdom was in far northern Syria and that covered the actual ancestral homeland of Abraham and, and the patriarchs and, and the land known as Padan Aram, which is the plain of Aram. And it bordered on the, with the Hittites to the west and the Assyrians to their east and, and their southeast. Well, the Mitanni kingdom is called a Hurrian or Horite kingdom by most mainstream academics today. And they do that based on language, because the Mitanni language seems to be related to the Indo-European language of the Urartu, 
who, who were in the um, the Black Sea region and south, just south of the Caucasus Mountains at this time. Well, well the um, the Mitanni Kingdom was probably a multi-ethnic kingdom. There's no doubt, just because of its location and and the amount of land that it encompassed and the tribes that that inhabited parts of those lands, but to call it a Horite kingdom simply because they spoke a language that, that doesn't appear to have been what would scholars would consider to be an, a Semitic language, but rather an Indo-European language, it is absurd because the Horites were Canaanites. And all biblical accounts tell us that the Horites, or the Hurrians as they're called by academics, are Canaanites. Esau dwelt in Mount Horus, and, and Mount Horus what was occupied by Horites, and that's how it got its name. And, and that was later called Mount Seir in, in Edomite times. It was originally in Genesis called Mount Hor, or Mount Horus. That now the Horites were clearly Canaanites. They're listed in Genesis chapter 10 as being a Canaanite tribe. I wouldn't call them Indo-Europeans per se, even though we know that all of the people of this region that are derived from Genesis 10 were white. The problem is that mainstream academics think that Semites were brown and that Jews are Semites. And as long as they think that, they're always going to simply dismiss Genesis chapter 10 as if it was just the fancy of some crazy old man named Moses. And, and they don't believe it at all. They can't believe it. If you're a Jew, or if your worldview is favorable to the lies of the Jews, you cannot believe that the peoples of Genesis chapter 10 are in any way, are in any way related. And all of modern archaeology and all of the studies of the peoples of Mesopotamia and the inscriptions and the conclusions drawn from those studies have been favorable to the Jew and the lies of the Jew concerning who they are for, for, for ever since the birth of archaeology, probably about 300 years ago. So all of our studies are, are slanted that now, what, when I read Near Eastern inscriptions, I, I can cut through a lot of the slant because I know the truth, it would take me probably a lifetime of reading Near Eastern inscriptions to piece together a very um, fragmented history of Mesopotamia and, and the surrounding lands during this period. What, what's important to know is that Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees, which is in what used to be ancient Sumer, around 2000 BC, and the Amorite kingdom, which was centered at Babylon at that time, 2000 BC. Now, now there was a lot of history between the scattering of the tribes in 2000 BC, but the Amorite kingdom was about to become a mighty kingdom and an empire in its own right, and Abraham was left there and went to his homeland in Haran. And in Haran, Haran was part of what was called the Mitanni kingdom at that time, and, and Padan Aram, which is obviously Abraham's ancestral homeland from Scripture. 
And there were great wars at that time between the Mitanni kingdom and the Hittites and between the Hittites and, and the, um, the, the people of Sumer. And Abraham was probably sent to the land of Canaan for his own good because of, because of all the warfare. Now, now, that it may be conjecture on my part, and it is, but there has to be, if, if Yahweh, if I had to imagine that he had a reason for telling Abraham to get out of his ancestral homeland and, and go to the land of Canaan, which is basically right in the midst of, of all these, the, the Hittites and the Amorites and all the enemies of God, it's probably because for some reason judgment was about to come to Abraham's ancestral homeland, and, and, and it, it took many centuries to unfold, but the rise of the Hittite Empire and, and, and the, um, the wars that, that had ensued, the Hittites, the Hittites had actually subjected the Mitanni kingdom to their rule for a long time, for about 400 years, and, and um, that may be why Abraham was told to get out of there. Right, it's so conjecture. the Amorites fell to the Hittites, and then what, later the uh, Assyrians? Well, well, right. The, the Assyrian, the Assyrian, what we call the Assyrian Empire, Assyria as a formidable power, the Hittite Empire had fallen apart or, or began to fall apart in the 16th century BC, and by the 14th, I'm sorry, by the 15th century BC, which was the century of the Exodus, it was no longer a, a formidable power. And Assyria was already on the rise as a nation by the 14th century. And um, what we, the Chaldees had, the Chaldees had come to the, the, um, the hegemony, had displaced the Amorites from Babylonia and taken Babylon over by the 11th century BC. But, but my only point here is that there's a lot of history. There's a lot of inscriptions and there were a lot of wars, and, and, and Clifton had covered some of this in his early teaching letters where he was talking about the wars between the people that worshipped the sun god and the people that worshipped the moon god. And that's how Clifton quantified it, but because he believes, and I don't doubt it, but, but the people that worshipped the sun god were probably Adamic people, and the people that worshipped the moon god were the Kenites and the Canaanites and, and, and the mixed tribes. So it's, again, it's a parallel of light versus darkness. Well, well, that that's very likely. It's it, it's very likely that it 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 um there were general lines in in that vein. I can't prove it. it it's I, I have read a lot of those inscriptions where where, where various tribes worship sun gods and moon gods. But but basically, the moon god Sin was later worshipped by a lot of Aryan tribes. The Midianites were one of them. The, the Midianites had had, um, had basically taken to moon god worship and used the crescent moon as their symbol, and that's evident in Scripture. I don't remember where it is off the top of my head, but it is in Clifton did write about that in the past. The cakes baked to the Queen of Heaven in Scripture had to be crescent rolls baked to the moon, and and that was a, an extension of that moon god, or in this case, moon goddess worship. So, so it, it's just another manifestation of that sort of idolatry. But the, um, 
the bottom line is that there, there was a lot of history and a lot of turmoil and a lot of war. And not all of these people were Adanic people. There were a lot of Canaanites. The Canaanite tribes were at times very powerful. The Hittites were very powerful in the 16th, 15th, 14th centuries B.C. The Amorites were very powerful from, from before 2000 B.C. and became a powerful kingdom and a powerful empire based in Babylonia. So it, it's, um, they, they became the heirs to the empires of, of the Sumerians that, that preceded them. The Kassites had control of, of um, Ur for some time with the fall of, of, of the Sumerian Empire. The, the Hittites had, dis, had, had, um, had sacked Ur and, and withdrew. And when the Hittites sacked it and withdrew, the Kassites moved in and that probably happened about 1800 B.C., I'm guessing 1700 B.C. It's, there's a long history there. There's a whole, it, it, it would take a long time to sort it all out, but there's a whole, and, and to sort out the mistakes of the archaeologists, which are based on the, their confusion over ethnicity. I'm hoping to do a lot of that study in, in a future series of programs on, on the, the early books of the Bible. I'm hoping to. It's one of the things, I have a lot of notes on it in diverse places, and, and it's one of the things that I hope to cover one day in the future. But, but it's, it's on the drawing board, right? All right. There were over 1,200 years between the flood of Noah and the call of Abraham, and that's important to understand. And there were many empires and have come and gone, and, and many great kingdoms and great city-states city in that period, that now, according to um, most academic sources, the rise of the first dynasty, the first dynasty in Egypt, happened right around the same time. Right around the same time that, that the um, beginning of Mesopotamian civilization was formed around 3500 B.C., the... Um, rise of the civilization of the pharaohs didn't happen until about 3200 B.C. And there was a pre-pharaoh civilization in Egypt that's dated to be older than that, but not much older by archaeologists. Now, now I'm not saying the archaeologists are accurate. I just want people to see that these, these, um, these cultures, which the Bible say are developed from the families of Noah very well came to be at a time that's commensurate with the, the estimations of the time of the flood, which we can garner from the Septuagint chronology. And, and I'm not saying that chronology is perfect. It's certainly not. There have certainly been things that are lost in our most ancient holy books and that we don't understand well enough. But those chronologies can be used as a rough measurement in conjunction with archaeology to see that the Bible story is indeed accurate even if we don't understand all of the dates perfectly. Now, the archaeologists, they're not right about their dates either. I mean, carbon dating, when you're carbon dating something 5,000 years old, you could very well be 500 years off. And things like stone and clay, 
they can't be carbon dated at all uh, unless there's biological matter which is found mixed in with the clay. It can't be carbon dated at all. There's, there's a lot of things that can't be dated. Dates are only estimated sometimes based on carbon dating and sometimes simply based on how deep something was when it was dug out of the ground. And dates are based on that. It's called strata and, and layers. The, the strata, are, are es- the ages of the strata are estimated in various ways. And archaeologists come up with rough dates based on that. All archaeological dates should be seen as rough dates. No archaeological dates are exact uh, unless there's very good history that, that's used, that very complete historical accounts that can be used in conjunction with the, the archaeological methods of dating to, to arrive at, at, at a fairly accurate date for something. So, so it's important to understand that this, this entire Adamic world for um, 1,200 years before the time of Abraham, this entire Adamic world was caught up in war, in competition for, for hegemony in, in order to establish tyrannies over one another. And, and a lot of that's the struggle between the Canaanites and, and the Adamic nations, but a lot of that is Adamic nations, like Nimrod, establishing hegemony over other Adamic nations, such as the Akkadians, the Assyrians. So, so we see that that's plain right in the Genesis 10 account. So we are, we're fighting with the, um, with the Canaanites and, and, and Kenites and Rephaim, and, and the Rephaim can't be taken out of this picture. Gilgamesh was actually, it's a pretty safe bet that Gilgamesh was actually a king of Iraq in the middle of the third millennium BC from inscriptions that indicate that. This, the, the Epic of Gilgamesh itself indicates that. And Gilgamesh claims to be a giant descended from the gods in, in his pagan viewpoint. So if he's not one of the Rephaim, then we should just throw our Bibles in the garbage. And there's a book of giants in the Dead Sea Scrolls where Gilgamesh is mentioned twice. So, so these things are real, that these things are tangible, and um, I'm not saying Gilgamesh is 80 feet tall, but he certainly was another Goliath and described as a very large and powerful man. He, he certainly was another Goliath. There's no doubt. Mainstream Judeos explain the presence of giants after the flood, or do they just ignore that? They don't try and explain it. I, I don't. Sometimes I have the answers because I've talked about it with guys that know, but I, I don't have the answer to that. I, I don't. I believe the Bible, right? I don't believe the mainstream Judeo-Christians. I, I, I didn't spend much time in, in, in Judeo-Christianity in my life. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know how they... I, I mean, aside from Aga Bashan hiding out on the roof of the ark, I don't know. I can't answer that. I'm so, sorry. There must have been a female giant hiding on the roof, too, for the continuation of the giants. Well, he would just snatch up one of Noah's daughters. Oh, Noah only had sons. That's right. Nah, nah, I'm kidding. It, it's a joke. It, it's ridiculous to think that, that the, the earth had to cover, the, the, the flood had to cover the entire planet is not scriptural because there are plenty of tribes which are, are, are mentioned later on very soon after the flood, which are definitely not 
on the ark, and, and the Kenites and the Rephaim are, are, are the two most mo, most striking of those tribes. Well, when you see Kenites and Rephaim mentioned in Genesis chapter 15, that has to make you think that the flood was not a planet-wide occurrence. I can't, I can't stress enough. Well, well first, let me, let me say this. I'm not even following my own outline for this program, right? Let, let me say this, that the... Um, a, a real quick recap of my point in, in, with the Genesis 10 Table of Nations. You, you don't have to know a whole lot of history to be able to, to point out and, and get somebody to look it right up on Wikipedia. Just have them look it up on Wikipedia. I know Wikipedia is horrible. I know it's full of lies. Just have them look this right up on Wikipedia. Go to the Ionians, who are the Greeks, the Javan, the Medes. Madai of Genesis 10-2. Have them look the Medes up on Wikipedia, and you'll see that these descendants of Japheth were white people. Look up the Philistines on Wikipedia. You'll see that these descendants of Ham were white people. Look up the Persians on Wikipedia. You'll see that the descendants of Elam, because wherever the Persians are mentioned in, in the Old Testament, the underlying word is Elam. And you look up Elam and the Persians on Wikipedia, you'll see that they were Aryans and they were white people. Well, if you have white families, then the only three you need to know is really the Philistines and, and the Medes and the Persians. That's all you need to know. Because one of those is a, Ham, a Hamitic tribe from Ham. Another one of those is a Japhethite tribe. And another one of those is a Shemite tribe. You look up those three tribes on Wikipedia and you'll find out that the members of those three tribes were white. So if there's one white family from Ham and one white family from Japheth and one white family from Shem, that's all you need to do to know to question the mainstream Judeo fairy tale about the families of Noah. Because they love to say that, oh, Ham was black and that's where black people came from and Japheth was um white and oriental peoples came from Shem, or maybe Shem was white and oriental peoples came from Japheth. Uh, I mean, I've heard it several different ways, and, and it's ridiculous anyway, because the law of God is kind after kind, and if you have a white wife and you're a white man, I don't care how many times you want to have sex with your wife, you're going to have white babies. So, so it, it's you see that there's white, just from those three families, the Medes, the Philistines, and, and the Persians. And they were all white, and Wikipedia admits it. Mainstream historical sources, ad, 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 you could see that. You know, a big, um, a, a big well, well, a big error, that there are clowns who think that they have truth from God and insist that there are Genesis 126 Adamites here walking amongst us, meaning white people who are distinct from the Adamites of Genesis 2-7. And this is a very absurd view of Scripture and history. All of the white Adamic people of historical times, all of them, descended from the Genesis 10 nations. And no whites can be identified who did not descend from the Genesis 10 nations. 
So therefore, all true white people of today are indeed descended from Seth. Now, of course, we have um, evidence from 20,000 years ago that there were white people here. And as I explained in, in presenting Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, we had the fallen angels here before the Adamic race, and, and they had to be white. And they would account for any pre-Adamic white populations, Cro-Magnon man, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Well, the fallen After angels, his, most certainly, they weren't Chinamen, Arabs, Turks, or Negroes. They're fallen angels. Our, our historical knowledge and our records of our race, all the way back through all the ancient inscriptions, the Greco-Roman classics, the Hebrew Bible, trace the white nations of Europe and, and the Near East back to the nations of Genesis 10. We can open history books and see that the nations of Genesis chapter 10, and when I say history books, I mean ancient history books, we could see that they were all white people and our historical consciousness all throughout European history understands this. There were no white people that had lasting civilizations outside of these Genesis 10 nations. The clown in, in, down in, in, in East Tennessee that thinks he has truth from God and, and that there are Genesis chapter 1 Adamites walking around, there's absolutely, who, who were distinct from the Genesis 2 Adamites, that there's absolutely no scriptural or historical basis for that crazy idea. And that's what it is. It, it's the crazy idea of an old, raging, um, moonshine-sucking lunatic. That's what it is. And, and I've seen other people repeat that idea. It does not hold up in scripture or history. The white nations of history descended from the families of Genesis chapter 10. They all came through Noah. They all came through Seth. And they all came through Adam. The, the one Adam of Genesis, because there's only one Adam in Genesis. And, and we should never compromise that. And if you do compromise that, you have embarked under the slippery slope of universalism, and it's going to get you in trouble. It's going to get you in trouble in later scripture as well. I cannot stress enough that the verifiable historicity of the Bible begins with Genesis chapter 10. And it's from those people that the white race originated as it existed in ancient times. And ancient anthropologists, I mean, when I say ancient anthropologists, I mean the 17 and 1800s, the archaeologists and, and the historians of that time, they understood this. They knew this. They took this for granted. They took it for granted because it's the testimony, not only of the Hebrew scriptures, it's the testimony of the Greco-Roman classics. Now, a lot of later scholars, with the rise of humanism and egalitarianism, wanted to include the other races of the world in that. 
the Jesuits and the Catholics wanted to include the other races of the world in that because they wanted an excuse to bring those other races of the world to Christianity so that they could rule over them. That's dominion theology. And dominion theology is basically an imperialistic theology which began in the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages and was carried forward by by the Jesuits and and then the Protestant churches adopted it, and then the, the, the especially the Church of England, and it was used to justify the idea of civilizing the other races in the British Empire. And Dominion theology is not our friend. Dominion theology is our enemy, and Dominion theology is the enemy of our God. Well, it's basically trying to establish a multiracial pseudo-Christian empire. Well, absolutely. We're, we're going to get to dominion theology and pull it apart in a few minutes. I want to say that Yahweh, in his providence, knowing that the other nations would not seek him, appointed the times ordained for those nations that they would have an end. And we see that In Paul's address to the Ionians, who were not Israelites, in Acts chapter 17, where Paul says, and he, meaning God, made from one, every meaning Adam, every nation of men, meaning Adamites, to dwell upon the face of all the earth, appointing the times ordained and the boundaries of their settlements. To seek Yahweh, if surely then, They would seek after him, then they would find him. And we know that this only refers to the Adamic race, because we have the testimony in Genesis chapter 5 first, that this is the book of the race of Adam. And and then in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, and this is what Paul is referring to. This is what Paul is referring to when he says that God ordained the boundaries of the settlements. He's referring to Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, where, he, where the word of God says, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel, for Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is a lot of his inheritance. When he separated the sons of Adam... Paul in Acts 17 is referring to that, and Deuteronomy 32.8 in turn is referring to Genesis chapter 11. And we see that in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided because that's when we can gauge the separation of the Adamic nations, that it happened in the days of Peleg. During his lifetime, did those nations separate from the plain of Shinar, where the Tower Tower of Babel was built, and, and, and established their own countries. Now, does the archaeology match that? That the archaeology basically does, the rise of civilization, of Adamic civilization, basically coincides with, with the time of the flood, according to the, the, the date estimates of archaeologists. But those date estimates are just estimates. 
so so we can well, we can see that there could be a, a variation of well, well five hundred a thousand years it, it it really doesn't matter to me because I understand that the um the archaeologists are not perfect, and neither are the chronologies of our bibles perfect that that they're um that there's a lot of things that we can tell from scripture, but they're not perfect. Do you have any statements? Not right now. I mean, you're hitting it pretty well. Well, well, Yahweh knew, as Paul tells us in Acts 17, that those other Adamic nations would not seek him. Now, for that reason, he appointed the times ordained, as Paul says for those nations. And that means that those nations would have an end. Yeah, like the Egyptians, time. the Persians. Yeah. The Egyptians, the Persians, they all had a beginning and an end. The children of Israel alone are promised by Yahweh to always be a nation in Jeremiah 31. And actually were many nations. Now, it, there's a lot of other prophecies. Shem, Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem and things like that. But, you know, all of these other Genesis 10 nations, they're not found today. And where they are found, we have nothing but bastards inhabiting them. Adamic people don't inhabit them anymore. They're all gone. A few of them are barely recognizable, but they're certainly not what they used to be. Well, I don't think there are any white people in Egypt, are there? Well, right. You might you might make an argument for some Ionian Greeks in Athens, but you know Greece. Nothing goods really come out of Greece since the fall of the Byzantine society, and and it was overrun by the Turks. So so if there are pockets of white Greeks, that well, that's fine. But most Greeks that I've ever seen were Turks. I've seen blonde, blue-eyed Greeks, don't get me wrong, but most Greeks that I've ever seen were Turks. Right, but, so, you know, Greece has not produced a philosopher or a poet worth mentioning in the last 700 years. Right, and I'm using Greece as an example, and I'm picking on it. Well, well that's just a fact of history. There may be some white Greeks left, but the nation itself is not what it was 600, 800, 1,200 years ago. And it's not coming back until the Turkish element is totally removed and the Arab and Jewish elements. Many of those nations, those Genesis 10 nations, they already had their end by the time that Paul wrote. Therefore, we find in Isaiah chapter 43 from verse 3, and I quote, For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. Now this is important. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, Yahweh's talking to Israel, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Isaiah 43. Now, if Yahweh gave Egypt and Sheba and Ethiopia, if Yahweh gave them up for the children of Israel, how did he give them up and who did he give them to? This is why Egyptians and Ethiopians were overrun with Negroes by the time of Jeremiah and why Yahweh had 
asked in Jeremiah chapter 13, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then ye also do, may do good who are accustomed to doing evil. That is who Yahweh gave those once great white nations up to. He gave them up to Negroes. That is why today those nations are no longer white. By Paul's time, those nations were no longer, they, they were marginally white. The process of mongrelization took over, well, well, it began 2,600 years ago, and it took several hundred years to complete. But by Paul's time, most of those Egyptians and Ethiopians were no longer white. The refusal to accept this demonstrable fact of history causes much confusion over the nature of man. Yahweh gave up Egypt and Ethiopia. They were great white Genesis 10 nations. Egypt was the greatest nation until about the time of Isaiah, the time of Jeremiah. Egypt was still a great nation. It, it was subject to the, to, the Pers, to, to the Persians, but that's after the time of Jeremiah. The refusal to accept these demonstrable facts of history and examine your scripture causes confusion over the nature of man, even in Christian identity, and that's a damn shame. The Hebrew use of parallelism. The Hebrews loved parallelism. I just I hit on this last night a little bit at the beginning of my Acts program. I talked about Hebraisms in the Scripture and the Hebrew use of parallelism. Parallelism is a facet of Hebrew literature used throughout Scripture. It's where something is mentioned and something else is mentioned which refers to the same thing, like the Lord God and Father. Well, Yahweh is our God and he's our Father. That's a very brief form of a parallelism. It's when something is mentioned and then the same thing is described again immediately following. And, and that's replete in, in the Old and New Testaments are replete with examples of parallelism. That now... Um, Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23, is basically a parallelism, which is telling us that the Ethiopian, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The Ethiopian is basically like a leopard. The Ethiopian of Jeremiah's time had skin both black and white. They were bastards. They had been overrun by Nubians. So, so there you have it. Yahweh gave those people up. Egypt, Sheba, and Ethiopia, which is Cush everywhere in Scripture, in the Hebrew, they were given up for thy ransom. Egypt, Sheba, and Ethiopia were given up for Israel's ransom. They were surrendered to the enemies of God here on earth so that Israel would survive. Because, ostensibly, these other great white nations would have consumed an apostate Israel if Yahweh had not given them up. Therefore, Yahweh used the once mighty white Assyrians as a scourge against a sinful Israel, and then later, he destroyed Assyria, as he said he was going to do. 
and he used the once mighty white Chaldeans of Babylonia as a scourge against a sinful Israel. And then later, he destroyed Babylonia, as he said, right in, right, right in Isaiah, 150 years before it happened, he said he was going to do. If Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba were white nations surrendered by Yahweh to his enemies, then the Negroes and the later Arabs who overran and destroyed those nations must be the enemies of Yahweh. That's why Jude describes the angels who sinned as being bound in chains of darkness until the judgment of the great day of Yahweh, which is the day of his vengeance. That's how we should see the other races. And we're going to get into that in a future installment of this series. The wonder of the promise to Abraham, fulfilled by the time of Christ, that his seed would indeed become many nations and also that his seed would inherit the nations. The wonder of that is fully revealed it's fully realized once we perceive that these white nations of the old world, the pre-Christian world, they were all, by the time of Christ, they were all under the control of dispersed Israelite tribes. Well, Bill, maybe a silly question. If they're bound in chains awaiting judgment or awaiting fire, you know, they're in darkness right now, where are they? Are we to understand that literally they're bound in chains somewhere? Bound in chains of darkness, right? All right. It's a chain of darkness. They mingled their seed. They are the other races. So, they're, my, so, so we're not I, to understand that there's some celestial dungeon somewhere where the fallen angels are awaiting fire. There's no pit in the ground in the middle of the desert where the fallen angels are, are, are bound up in chains awaiting the judgment day of God. All right. Bound in chains of darkness because their progeny are the other races. And they're all going to be destroyed at the day of Yahweh's vengeance, at the day of his coming. I can argue that from the, from the epistle of Jude, that the epistle of Jude establishes that. Right, I agree that they are awaiting their appointed time when they're going to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. That's why there's only sheep and goats. That's why there's only wheat and tares. That's why there's only good fish and bad fish. Right, there's, there's no, no differentiation. There's no differentiation. Okay, you're a good goat, so you can get in line with the sheep. Absolutely. Once it is fully realized, the, the wonder of the promise to Abraham it is made manifest once it is fully realized that the white nations of the old world, the nations of Genesis 10, the pre-Christian world, by the time of Christ, all those white nations and their lands were under the control of dispersed Israelite tribes. Now today, 2,000 years later, for the most part, all of those old nations also have been destroyed by the enemies of God, 
in, in the Mohammedan uprising, the Arab conquests, in the Mongol invasions, by the treachery of world Jewry, the flood that the dragon sent out of its mouth after the woman, the, the Mongol invasions and, and the Arab invasions of, of northern Africa, Mesopotamia, um, the Levant, the, the, um, all, the way to, all the way to India, Iran, ancient Persia, they were overrun with Mongols, they were overrun with Arabs, all their blood is mixed, all those other Genesis 10 nations. That the Arabs of, of southern Spain, a lot of those has been, have been wiped out. That, that's the ancient um, land of Tartessus. They were Japhethites, the Ionians of Greece. That they've been, well, well, if they're not wiped out, they're severely reduced. Uh, I believe there's some white Greeks and that they're severely reduced. But, but um, that, that's my opinion from, from what I've seen with, with my eyes. The, the peoples of um, the Black and Caspian Sea regions were at one time all white. The Eastern Slavs have been overrun by Mongols and, 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 and well, basically they're all Tatars now. It, it's um, basically what you have left is the children of Israel and perhaps smatterings of the other tribes amongst them or people who descended from the other tribes amongst them, and, and that's not to be doubted. It's a matter of prophecy, but to what extent, we don't know. I mean, we don't know. We won't know until the end. You can't look. You cannot look at a white man anywhere today and say, oh, he's a Jepethite or, or he's a, a Hamite. He's an Ethiopian. He's a descendant of the original Ionians. He's a descendant of Meshach. You, you can't do that. It can't be done. I don't care how smart you think you are. It can't be done. But we're, um, point out, though, about the Tatars, they really were mostly centered around the Crimea and around parts of the Volga. You know, they never made it up to, you know, Moscow or St. Petersburg. So I, I don't think it's proper to write off the Eastern Slavs like that. Yeah, yeah but where they are today used to be also white lands. Right, where they are today, yes, but that doesn't mean everybody in Russia is a Tatar. Well, well, no, I didn't say everybody in Russia was a Tatar, right. but the Eastern Slavs definitely took the brunt of the Mongol invasions. That right. they definitely took of, of mixing with the Khazars and the Jews. That they, they definitely took the brunt in 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 parts of Europe of, of the Turkish invasions. It, it's you know the Eastern Slavs aren't what they used to be. There's little doubt. I mean, there may be some white Slavs left in, in Russia, I'm sure, but it, it's, um, it, it doesn't extend past there uh, unless they're Russians who have moved east in, in more modern times. At, at one time, the, the world was white. The, the, um, the Masagete, the, the Oxus and, and, and Jakartas River Valleys was the home of the Masagete for a long time, and, and they what were certainly a portion of the dispersed Israelite Scythians, and they had um, lived in Khazaria and, and what we know today is Khazaria and Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. Those lands were white lands. Right. So historically, we might say, what, 40% of the world's surface was populated by white people from modern-day Morocco all the way into India and Siberia. 
and and some of them voluntarily mixed. It, it's very clear that some of the Eastern Scythians voluntarily mixed themselves with with with, with Mongol apes. I, I mean, I don't know how else to describe them. And and, and that there's that there have been archaeological findings of of Scythian graves with Scythian implements and, and Asian type people in them. Uh, I mean, that there's that there was mixing on a voluntary and on an involuntary level. And, um, well, well, I don't really want to call them prehistoric times, but there was no history being recorded in, in, in Asia at that time, that's for sure. Not amongst the Scythians, so, so it's sort of prehistoric, right? All right. What are the origin of all these people, the Tatars, the, the Kumans? Well, well, who knows? I mean, the origin of those people, I would guess, I would bet is through the various tribes who race mixed with aliens in their scattering and in their travels in 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 Asia in Southeast Asia. Who knows? It's the when 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 there's no history, there's no written history of a region. It's pretty difficult to deduce at times. It's very clear that a lot of those people are certainly not white, but do have white blood. By the time of Christ, the dominant tribes of the Oikumene were the Romans, Trojan Romans, the, the, the tribe of Judah, the Scythians, the Germanic tribes that, that can be grouped under the title of Scythians, with which I would include the Cimmerians, the, the original Gauls, the Galatahi, the Germanic tribes, and the Parthians, who controlled Persia at this time and, and, and most of the land east of the Euphrates and Armenia, which they lost to the Romans eventually. Now, now, all of these, along with other major tribes, such as the Dorian Greeks and the Phoenicians, who were, who were Israelites, all of these tribes that dominated the world at the time of Christ, and, and that definitely held the hegemony wherever they existed, all of these tribes were, were um, dispersed from the dispersed children of Israel. Abraham inherited the nations by the time of Christ. Now, since then, a lot of those nations have been overrun by invasions of other races. That's another story. But Abraham inherited the Genesis 10 nations in the dispersed children of Israel by the time of Christ. Paul explains in, in, um, in Romans chapter 4, Paul explains the basis for the Christian faith that Abraham believed God that his seed, his offspring, would become many nations. Paul's actually teaching Christian identity. He actually teaches Christian identity throughout his epistles. If you don't know history, you're going to be blind to it and you're not going to be able to see it. But Paul is actually teaching Christian identity right in Romans chapter 4 where he basically defines the faith of Abraham. And, and whenever he mentions the faith of Abraham, we can't take it out of this context that Abraham believed God that his seed would become many nations. And, and Paul quotes, just as it is, it is written that a father of many nations, I have made you. Yet, you know, Yahweh didn't tell him 
God did not tell Abraham, I will make many nations I, I, I will make many nations your offspring. He didn't tell him that. He said, I will make your offspring, your seed, many nations. That's what he told him. And a lot of people, especially in, in, in denominational churchianity, that they want to twist, they want to reverse what God told Abraham. But according to Paul in Romans chapter 4, Abraham's seed had already become many nations by that time, and those were the nations that Paul had his mission to. And those nations had controlled the Adamic oikumene, the white world, by the time of Christ. And all of the other Genesis 10 nations were on a decline by the time of Christ or before the time of Christ, or or were already gone by the time of Christ. As Paul says, Yahweh determined the times appointed for them. With this, I, I want to discuss the folly of dominion theology. I want to read um, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Now, dominion theology basically it professes, and, and, and there are slightly different flavors of it, But the basic profession is that God gave Adam the commission to rule over the other races with his law. And Israel should fulfill that commission which Adam had by ruling over the other races with the law of God. Is that the way you theology? You don't put animals under the law. Well, well, of course you don't. Uh, Of course you don't. You can't. I'm going to quote this. You know, um, I, I hate to mention him twice in one program, but Joe November, he he teaches this. He teaches that the beasts of the field were actually that that were created in Genesis 1:25 were, were actually the other races, and that men that the children of Israel should take the law and rule over them and civilize them and teach them the law. And, well, that's and what he wants. Them. He wants us to give them our language, our clothing, dress them up, play house with them, make them respectable, presentable, so then it's not so bad when they want to marry our daughters. And then you can have an Egyptian son-in-law, and it's okay. He's no better than a Jesuit, right? Let, let's read Genesis one twenty-six and, and 27. And God said, I'm reading from the King James Version, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him, made he male and female, he created them. I'm sorry. And God blessed them and said, I'm going to read Genesis 1:28 too. And said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and and replenish. It says replenish, but the word is to fill. And plenish the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over, have dominion over, the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And I don't see any specific command there to have dominion over the beast of the field, and bring them to law, and, and, um, and civilize them. 
it says to have dominion over them, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. It doesn't say anything about teaching them the law, and it doesn't really say anything explicit about the beast of the field. Nothing at all. How do you get out of that, that we should take books to niggers in the Congo and try to get them to learn the law of God? Where is that commission in Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28? It's not well, there. Do we have to find it in Genesis, or can we find it in the Talmud? Well, well right. Let, let's read Genesis 9, 1. Genesis 9, 1 and 2, I'm sorry. And 3. And God, this is after the flood, of course. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And here's the part I'm driving at. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moves upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So, that, to me, defines that dominion of Genesis 1, 26, and 27, that the, every beast of the earth would have fear and dread of the Adamic man. Now, when we go to um, Deuteronomy, I just wrote about this in a, in a paper called Who Are the Peacemakers? The peacemakers are, of course, men who would uphold the law of God. They're the peacemakers. In Deuteronomy, we see this. I'm going to read two passages, which I quoted in that, in that paper. From Deuteronomy chapter 23, a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to his tenth generation, he shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. An, Ammon, an Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation, Shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever? Right, forever. It doesn't say after the 11th generation they're good to go. Bastard after 10 generations is still a bastard. So what do we say, Bill, what do do we say to the um, people who are white and they're only 15% Canaanite? Well, Deuteronomy 23, 6 is the verse I'm driving at. Thou shalt not seek their peace nor their prosperity all thy days forever. And somebody may say, well, that's for Ammonites and Moabites. And in that, on that note, let's read Deuteronomy chapter 29, where we see even stronger and more general admonitions. And it says from verse 16, for ye know, how ye have dwelt in the land of Egypt. Now, the land of Egypt was a white land, right? They were white people, Mitzrayim. They were white. They were, they were sons of Ham, but they weren't cursed. Only Canaan was cursed. And Yahweh loved Egypt. For ye know how, ye, how we have dwelt in the land of Egypt and how we came through the nations which ye passed by. And ye have seen their abominations. Now, a lot of those nations were white, and some of those nations were Canaanite, right? Ye have seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them. Lest this should be among you man or woman or family or tribe, whose heart turns away this day from Yahweh our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. Lest this should be among you 
a root that beareth gall and wormwood. Now, Egypt was a white nation, and this refers to Egypt as well. And it come to pass, when he hears the words of this curse, that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of my heart to add drunkenness to thirst. In other words, if you want to go consort with the other nations, that's the imagination of your own heart, and you're consorting, you're adding drunkenness to your thirst. The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord shall, and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. That's a command made directly to the children of Israel to stay away from the people of the other nations. Well, I see that, the, Bill, as a warning and a promise. The warning is, if you run off with those other people, you're eventually going to take up with them, and your name will be blotted out because your offspring will be mixed. Well, well that's absolutely correct. Let's read the um, the peace. Peace is one of the promises of obedience given in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And it says there, and it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of Yahweh thy God to observe and to do all his commandments, which I commanded thee this day, that Yahweh thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. Now, he's talking about white nations there. He's talking about the Genesis 10 nations. Never mind the other races. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of Yahweh thy God, and, and, and it goes on to talk about how blessed they will be, and it goes on to talk about the fear that the other nations will have of the children of Israel. Yahweh shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way, and flee before thee seven ways. Yahweh shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses, and in all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which Yahweh thy God giveth thee. Yahweh shall establish thee a holy people unto himself, as he is sworn unto thee. If thou shalt keep the commandments of Yahweh thy God and walk in his ways, and here's the line I'm getting to, and all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of Yahweh, and they shall be afraid of thee. We want non-Israelite peoples, whether they're white or not, as we see in Genesis chapter 9, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. We want the other nations and the other peoples of the earth to be in fear of us. We want them to be in dread of us when we keep the law of Yahweh our God, we're promised that they indeed will be in fear of us and in dread of us. We want them to fear and dread us if you go to them with the Bible and try to teach them the word of God, you're compromising with their idols. You're placating them. That doesn't, that, that's not what God demands of the children of Israel. He demands the children of Israel to be holy and separate 
and to keep his laws so that the other nations and all the beasts of the earth, Genesis 9, are in fear of us and dread us. That's our commission. Dominion theology is a joke. It's satanic. It's contrary to the word of God throughout the scripture. Dominion theology has absolutely no place in Christian identity. None whatsoever. Dominion theology belongs with British Israel so that they could make excuses for their empire. You see where it is today. Where's the British Empire today? I guess Dominion theology wasn't a good idea after all because now London's overrun with beasts. Dominion theology is for Jesuits. It's for Britishers. It is not for Christian identity, period. It's a joke. Put a fork in it. It's done. Well, the end result, as I said, it's to make the other races respectable, dress them up in white clothing, give them the veneer of white civilization, and all the while they're in close contact with us because we're there ruling over them, teaching them how to live. And fast forward a couple generations and maybe the empire's fallen and now they're all pouring into the homeland. Or they've just mixed and the empire's fallen. Inevitable punishment from God for, for giving your pearls, casting your pearls before swine, they turn and they rend you with them. That's why we don't do those things. We don't bring the word of God to non-Israelites. We don't bring the word of God to non-Adamic people. We don't do it. We're guaranteed punishment. We are guaranteed punishment if we do it. And, and the Jesuits and, and, and the Jew bastards that, that have infiltrated Christian identity have promoted this. And, and it's absolutely contrary to the word of God. It does not belong in Christian identity. And on that note, we've said enough, and, and I really did want to get to the call of Abraham tonight. I mean, we, we, we did touch on it, but we'll get into that next week and, and hopefully work our way down to Jacob and Esau and, and discuss that. All right. Thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh, Yahweh, everybody. And good night. And remember, Yahweh and Yeshua are the same. And... and well, maybe we'll have another discussion about that, but hopefully not next week. Right. Well, I'll be here next with Acts chapter 24, Yahweh willing. It's sad that we have to take time out of our programs to mention that Yahweh and Yeshua are the same. <laughs>